my friends and everyone interested in this ancient text called the Bible. We are back into Exodus. We're going to explore chapters 21 through 24. This time we're going to discover that this isn't just an interruption like we've seen before. There's something um, very different about a few of these chapters. And we're going to have to ask our question, why are they in the Bible? Why are they here? We're going to encounter one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And we're going to explore some kind of disturbing stuff as we look at the laws that God gave Israel. Yeah, the Bible's about to get very real. We might get a little bit colorful. So buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. So I didn't mention this at the end of the 10 words episode. At the end of chapter 20, there's actually this kind of little interesting little side note where God says, I want you to build an altar. We're going to do some stuff with the altar in chapter 24. And so that's why there's this weird like gap. Like, why are there a few chapters here put in the Bible? Um, at the end of 20, he says, I want you to build an altar, but don't build it like with a hammer and chisel. I don't want you to carve it. Remember, they come out of Egypt where they've experienced a whole culture that's dedicated to you know, this idol worship, worship of these gods. They had a plethora of gods in Egypt. And one of the things that they did, we've seen, you could see plenty of arts and crafts and, and the buildings, the, like the st statues and stuff that people made in Egypt to commemorate, honor, and worship the gods as part of their, you know, religious rites. And God is saying, I want you to build an altar, but not like you saw them do in Egypt. I want you to just grab stones I want you to use things that I've made and make an altar out of it. So we're going to do some things in chapter 24. God is setting the stage with this altar. <clears throat> um, and much later, God is actually going to give instructions on how to build an altar for them to carve and use hammer and chisel and things like that. But for this instance... God is really trying to divorce their, their way of thinking, their way of living from their Egyptian lives. And so make an altar out of stones. And then we get this really, really weird interruption. Chapters 21 through 23 don't really fit. Now, the, the author has interrupted the storyline a couple of times. Like if you remember when he mentioned Passover, he's like, well, let me take a second here to elaborate on what the holiday, the festival of the Passover is going to be like, the rules and regulations around that. And we've seen it a couple of different times where he'll mention something and then pause, elaborate, and then go back to the story. But this section is very different. And many scholars agree that the chapters that we're about to get into, 21 through 23, are most likely case laws that Israel experienced and encountered after they got to the promised land, Canaan, and they were trying to determine how do we respond to these issues that are happening in our nation based on the Ten Commandments. And then they were, mo they were not most likely... Many scholars presume they were added as they understood. This is how we're going to handle these specific cases according to the Ten Commandments. And, and we'll see that the language is very different. The way that the, it's written is very different from, and it's total interruption. And the laws that are, we're about to explore have nothing to do with wandering. They're only really laws. Some of them could be laws that they had to deal with while they were wandering. 
But a lot of these have to do with things that they are going to encounter only once they've settled in the land and they've established a nation, a home for themselves. And so that's kind of the framework for why um, these next few chapters are, are assumed that they're added later after they enter the promised land. This is one of the reasons why we're going to say that Moses wrote most of the old, uh, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, and that some editors kind of added some commentary later because of the way that a lot of scholars view these few chapters. They don't conflict. They're just, hey, these are how we need to operate based on the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> so what are these kind of additional laws? The first one is slavery, laws on slavery. Now, remember, they have been slaves for 400 years. All they know is a life of slavery. Imagine all the times they thought to themselves, man, if I just had slaves of my own, how much better would my life be? God is about to undermine the way that they've perceived slavery, the way that they've experienced it, and the way that they would most likely participate in it in the future. We've talked about this before, and I, we're, we're going to encounter some like really maybe um, things that are going to offend our sensibilities as we look, walk through these laws. These are the ways that the Israelites interpreted the Ten Commandments and how we are to deal with some of these issues, dealing with slaves and rape and abuse and things like that, that are out of our comfort zone. But remember, God doesn't like hit the reset button and say, okay, I expect everyone to be perfect. And sometimes we ask, why doesn't God just do that and say, here is exactly how to live perfectly. Do it or else. And, and I think we've already experienced um, a good amount of how difficult that would be. I mean, God has provided. He didn't need to, but he, you know, he gave them manna. He's given them water. He's given them meat to eat. He protected them from the Egyptian army. He freed them from slavery. Some of this is fulfilling his promise, but some of it is above and beyond what he promised. And even though he has proven himself to be so good and trustworthy, um, the Israelites, they just bitch and moan. They complain every time they have a slight inconvenience that they encounter. Right. And they're like, oh, I wish we were back in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to die? You know, it's soap opera. Oh, what would be a really good if you have a really good name for a soap opera based on the Israelite wandering in the desert, please leave a comment. Let me know. I would love to hear it because that's basically what this is. A soap opera drama. Like, oh my gosh, for real, again, we have to deal with this storyline again. We didn't like run it dry already. But beyond that, God is also going to actually explain in chapter 24, he's going to give us some insight, which is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, as to why he doesn't just hit the reset button, start over. Now, he is leading them into the promised land where he's kind of like trying to recreate an Eden-type relationship with people, where he will be present with them. He will be their God. They will live in union together, and they'll have some God laws to follow in order to maintain that relationship. One of them being the way you treat slaves. Now, slavery isn't like the Egyptian slavery. God is actually, again, trying to divide that mentality. Don't treat people like they treated you. Also, don't treat people like the Canaanites are treating their slaves. Slavery was an economy. And I don't mean that in the sense that we might think of, like when we think about the ancient, the old American slavery. 
when I say economy, I mean that's how their economy functioned. They didn't have a they didn't have jobs that you could apply for. They didn't have a better business bureau. They didn't have unemployment. What they had was I can't provide for my family, so I need to commit myself to work for someone who can afford to pay my mortgage bill and put food on the table. So if I can't afford to take care of my family, I go, and we've talked about this before, I go to someone who can afford it and I say, I will do whatever you want. You can treat me however you want as long as you pay for my needs, as long as you take care. It, it, it's very much like an employer-employee type of contract. But they didn't have regulations, they didn't have OSHA, they didn't have an HR department, right? So that type of contract was, you know, there were no regulations around it. They didn't have a system that gave them uh, some structure to it. And so people were mistreated and abused and taken advantage of, right? Uh, and the contracts weren't honored, weren't kept. And so that's where that mentality kind of like developed. And God says, we're not going to behave like that. In fact, you can't even keep your slave forever. There's actually a limit on how long you can keep your slave. The slave that you hire or that you paid for, you paid that person to be your slave. You bought their house for them and they committed to six years of slavery. Whatever the case may be, there's a limit and you are going to treat this person with human value. Now go read it for yourself. I encourage you as always read the text for yourself. We're just kind of talking about it from a dumb Christian perspective, but in a very real sense, God is saying we are going to treat our slaves with value. Instead of hitting the reset button, God is actually interjecting himself. He's interrupting the culture and the narrative that they're telling themselves and saying, okay, I'm going to take this system that you're operating in and we're actually going to evolve out of it. And this is where he starts. He says, okay, let's actually start to change the way we think about people and taking care of each other and this idea of slaves. Okay, what else? Let's keep going through some of these laws. Okay, then we get to striking and cursing mom and dad. I'm skipping some of these. I'm just kind of hitting the high level ones. Again, read it for yourself. And if you don't, like the way that these are talking, the, the way that these laws are unfolding, I highly recommend reading the book, um, How Not to Read the Bible. Um, it's in the description. If you're watching on YouTube down below, really helped me kind of like understand a better framework of what's actually going on here in the ancient times. Striking or cursing mom and dad. Again, this goes back to one of the 10 commandments, honor your mom and dad, honor them. Um, what does that mean? Does it mean you have to obey them? Well, kind of the case law is, well, somebody hit their mom and dad. Well, obviously that's not honoring. So what's the consequence? Actually, the consequence for hitting mom or dad is death. The same consequence results in cursing. I think uh, don't curse mom and dad. If And the idea of cursing is treating them in a way that has a causal effect that actually affects them maybe publicly in the the public eye or in the family or you know maybe like breaks their will to live right striking cursing mom and dad huge huge no-nos this is a law that could be applied at any time however we shortly then get into laws about domesticated animals 
crossing personal property lines, causing damage, killing people, etc. This isn't an issue that they're going to have to deal with until they get into the promised land, until they get into Canaan and they've been assigned their allotted places to live. So at this point, it means nothing to them. What's the point of, of it being ascribed here? They're going to have another 40 years where that doesn't mean anything to them. Again, one of the reasons why a lot of scholars assume this is probably why these chapters are added later. But it's case laws about domesticated animals causing damage and, and hurting, even killing other people, and how that needs to be deal, dealed with, dealt with. Then we get to sorcery. Sorcery, this is, I, I'm not trying to do a whole lot of commentary on this one, but this is interesting. Because it does come from the word pharmakeia, which... Um, sometimes is ascribed to say, oh, that's why you can't have anything to do with drugs because sorcery and drugs are totally interconnected. And then, but that becomes a real slippery slope because like who gets to decide which drugs and all these things. Okay, fine. But all that to say, the Hebrew understanding of this word was behaving in a way with the intention of communing and interacting with spiritual beings. Okay, the intention was to interact with spiritual beings and primarily spiritual beings in rebellion against God. They were trying to divine, have communion with these gods, not Yahweh God. And a lot of this practice is taking place. They saw it in Egypt, but a lot of it is also taking place in the land of Canaan where God is leading them. He's taking them to this new place where they're going to see a lot of sorcery practices and if we read some of the ancient Eastern st stories and texts like the Epic of Gilgamesh, or we read about the other, the, you know, there's plenty of stories about how the gods came down and, and had, you know, demigods. And, and, and so there are stories that reflect the biblical narrative. But what's very interesting is that these other stories, Epic of Gilgamesh and all these other accounts, suggest that these gods interbreeding with humans is actually a valuable thing. It's a good thing. It creates these godlike men, these giants, these people who could lead their people. They gave them secret knowledge. They, they, they were among them. And these other cultures write about how it's a good thing. But the Bible writes a counter-narrative that says, actually, when the, the sons of God made the Nephilim with the daughters of men, that's actually a bad thing because it leads people away from Yahweh. It actually takes their eyes and attention off of the one true God, the one who really created everything, did and does everything, and, and draws worship to these spiritual beings who actually hate and rebel against Yahweh God. And so he's saying, you're going to encounter, you're going to see a lot of, you know, um, pillars and altars and all these, you know, writings, incantations, things of ways people try to commune with these gods, sorcery, don't mess with it. The penalty is death. Yeah, this is not a good thing. This is not something for you to mess with. And I don't really want to get, you know, carried away in it, but there is like a flavor of that that's infiltrating the church even today, trying to like interact with these. Oh, we won't get into that. 
it, it's there. Just be aware of it, at least. Then we get into bestiality. Uh, caution, trigger, warning, if you will. This is sex with animals. Really gnarly, nasty stuff. Some scholars suggest that this has to do with some of the um, pagan worship practices like sorcery, that they would do it as a way to worship or interact with the gods. But as far as they can find, there's only one culture that would or did allow for sex with, I think, either donkeys or horses. And it had to do with the fact that their god was represented by a donkey or a horse or something like that. But oh, by and large, it was not a common practice in among the pagan cultures. So we'll at least acknowledge that, yeah, it conflicts with that culture and that um, religious system that did allow for bestiality in that one instance. But on the other hand, it's just a complete abomination to the design and intention that God created sex for. The original intention when he created it, Adam and Eve, have sex enjoy intimacy. I have this friend who says, who, who talks about the God of the orgasm. Like it was God's gift. Enjoy this. It's something to be enjoyed, but in the context of a husband and a wife and, and, and sex with animals is this atrocious perversion of what God designed it for to this beautiful intimacy between a husband and a wife, which is meant to be the picture of our relationship with God, intimacy with the one true God, not to be perverting ourselves by seeking out and enjoying intimacy with these false gods, with these perverted, we'll just leave it at that. But yeah, bestiality penalty is death. Uh, there's also some really incredible laws about mistreating widows and fatherless children, right? That's unheard of in these ancient cultures. Uh, a, a widow either gets cast to the side and she gets abused, she gets raped, she gets, you know, mistreated or just like kicked out of the community, left to die. The same with fatherless children. They get abused. They get captured. They get kidnapped. We talked about in the 10 words, the 10 commandments, thou shall not steal um, very likely kidnapping is what that was referring to. No, we're, we're not going to be a people who mistreat widows and, and fatherless children. We are going to honor everyone because everyone is a part of this kingdom of priests. Everyone is a priest in this nation. And there's actually a really, really cool story about the daughters of Zelophehad. I, I think it's in Numbers, maybe. It's in one of the other Pentateuch books, five books that Moses wrote. Um, and it's about how there are these daughters who are, their father died, they don't have any brothers, and the traditional system is to hand down the, uh, the, the inheritance of the father when he dies to the sons. Well, there are no sons in this family, so the daughters are like, hey, we think that we should get the inheritance, and guess what? It breaks all cultural norms, but Moses says, yeah, you're right. You get the inheritance because our culture is vastly different to every other culture here in this area. Um, then he you know, goes on, don't treat your rulers like you treated Moses. Now, they're not going to have a king for a long time, but they are going to have someone who they kind of look up to and say, how does God want us to respond to this situation? They're referred to as judges later. 
Um, after Moses dies, he passes the torch to Joshua, and he's kind of like the leader in charge. He's not technically a king, um, but then, you know, soon after Joshua dies, they're kind of left leaderless, and everyone just does free-for-all, and God gives them judges. Again, uh, 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 something that they're not really dealing with until later. Don't mistreat your your leaders. <clears throat> Then we also get this law at the beginning of chapter 23 that says don't bear witness with the masses just to fit in because that perverts justice. Do not team up with the voices that are, are, are shouting and just sound really good because that's not justice. That actually perverts justice justice. And regardless of whatever is going on in our world today, because we might be able to look on the news and see that happening or on, on our social media feeds and see that happening. What I find very interesting about it is this is a law given to the Israelites. And yet when Jesus is on trial, the high priests go around whispering, trying to get the people, hey, let's all say we should crucify Jesus. And as, as more people start to do it, more other people start to join in because, oh, I don't want to stand out. I want to fit in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crucify Jesus. So there's this very interesting law way back here in the beginning of when the nation is established. Do not just jump in with the masses, um, especially if you have no idea if whether it's true or not. That perverts justice. <clears throat> There's one that I love. He says, if you see your enemy's donkey in distress, help the donkey. Like if he's trapped in a bramble bush or he's, you know, carrying too much weight on himself and the donkey is, is hurt or whatever, but you hate the guy who owns the donkey. No, we're going to help each other, even if we're at odds with each other. Man, what, what an... <laughs> What a difficult like mentality to put into play. And this is a law. This is the law. I don't care if you hate somebody. You're going to help them when they're in need. I thought that was uh, really interesting. Don't oppress the sojourner. The sojourner is someone who's like... Um, a wandering nomad, like they're just kind of traveling through the land, like a they're they're doing a European, they're hitchhiking through Europe, right? And and he he's saying, don't mistreat that person who just happens to be wandering through your land because that's who you were. You once were a sojourner. Again, language used for you were a sojourner too. You wandered in the desert, and there were times where certain tribes and groups wouldn't let you pass because they didn't want you walking through their land. Don't treat other wanderers like that. Let people go through. Let people do what they're doing. Treat them well, like you would have wanted to be treated. Oh, that sounds familiar, right? Then there's laws about feasts. I want you to have parties every year. Three specifically, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Where is the other one? The Feast of the Harvest and the Feast of Ingathering are all parties celebrating God's provision and his generosity. They have to do with certain things that go on throughout the year, Passover and a harvest, right? And things like that. But they're all oriented around taking time to remember and pay attention to how well God has protected and provided for his people. Uh, don't mix. 
the religions that you're going to encounter, this kind of ties as a callback to the sorcery one, don't mix the religious practices that you're going to encounter or the ones that you just left out of Egypt. Don't mix them <clears throat> with this system that God, Yahweh, is cultivating for you. That's not what he wants. It actually is going to dilute and it's going to take you away from the whole purpose and intention of what God is bringing you into the promised land for, the, the promise that he's fulfilling to Abraham to preserve a people group so that he can bring about the Messiah, one who will save and bless the entire world. Uh, God is going to protect them. He kind of gives them this, this promise. I will protect you. I'm going to send an angel into the promised land. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to defeat the enemies. And there's two phrases that we're going to see here, I think, in chapter 23. One is blot them out, and the other is drive them out. They're two very different things. Blot them out is very clearly, I'm going to kill them, destroy them, decimate them. But drive them out is language that says there are some people who were not, we're not focused on killing these people groups. We're just going to drive them out of the land. We'll let them live and they can find a settlement. They can establish a settlement somewhere else. It's just not going to be here in the land of Canaan. Now, the reason why there's this language in two different ways, blot them out and drive them out, is because there are two different types of people groups that we're about to encounter when we get to the land of Canaan. And we've already talked about this. There are still some people groups who are worshiping the gods and have among them Nephilim, Anakim, Rephaim, offspring of the, the, the interaction between these spiritual beings in rebellion against God and human beings. And they produced Nephilim. And it even says that throughout, even as they go into in um, <clears throat> Numbers, when they get to the land of Canaan, they're talking about the Nephilim that are in the land. It's, we saw it way back in Genesis 6, right before the flood. That's a big reason why God sent the flood is because that like genetic manipulation between human beings and spiritual beings. It's a bad thing. It's not good. And we're seeing it again. And God's saying, I'm going to wipe that out. I will blot that out. Those nations, those people groups who have perverted themselves in such a way that they've intermingled this hybrid of human beings and spiritual beings. The rest of them we will drive out. So there's some different language here, and I just want us to be aware of that because there is that like, well, what? God just wanted genocide, wipe out men, women, and children. For the tribes and groups who were interbreeding, yes. The rest of them will drive them out. And there's a lot of spiritual undertones going on there. It's not just that they were bad people or God didn't like them. It's that there's some major perversion going on and, and, and God is not going to stand for it. Okay, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> in in, in uh, Exodus chapter 23, verse 29, this is my favorite verse. Well, one of my favorite verses, especially in the Old Testament, says, I will not dr um, drive them out in a year. Otherwise, the, the wild beasts and the plants would overtake the land. And the language that's being used here is this idea that God says, I have this promise for you. 
right? This good thing where almost this new Eden where we're going to be in relationship together. I will be there. We'll be together. But I'm not just going to give it to you all in, in one little snap of the fingers. And we talked about this a little bit ago. God has already given people these like amazing gifts. He's, he's freed them from slavery. He's protected them from Pharaoh's army. He's providing them with manna and water and meat and victory over the enemies. And yet, every time, how do they respond? They go back to griping and moaning, complaining to God. So here God uses this language that he says, I'm not just going to do this in a year. This is going to be a process, an evolutionary process where I, I work in your hearts this idea that we're removing ourselves from Egypt. We're getting rid of the perversion in Canaan and we are establishing something like a new Eden. The laws, the rules, the 10 words, they're intended to draw your heart every time God talks about the law. It's for the purpose of drawing our hearts, the the hearts of the people, not just so they, they follow a checklist, but so that they understand the value of what God is doing through the laws and the good that it produces in them. And he says, it's going to take time for you guys to understand and, and grow into this mentality where we treat people better and we honor God in ways that we haven't done in millennia, right? So this is that verse. I'm not going to do it in a year because if I did, nature would take over. And the word specifically is the beasts would rise up and kill you and the plants would take over. But the imagery is that nature would take over. The natural instincts of people, which are to bitch and moan, would overrule this process that God is trying to take them on in order to accomplish this like greater perspective and this better relationship than one where it's just God continuously giving and giving and giving and everyone else just not being satisfied. You're not good, God. Why don't you give us these other things like the other gods give those other people, right? That's a big mess. So we're going to do this, but it's going to be a process. Okay. If we back up a couple verses to 24, God says, when you go into the land, you're going to break down their pillars. And the reason why I wanted to back up there for a second is because next chapter, chapter 24, which we're going to unpack a little bit here, talks about how God wants them to set up pillars. We're going to have to encounter some things that are might be a little bit difficult for a Bible-believing person because we're going to see things in these pillars, in the ark, in in some of the ways that God is establishing Israel to behave. And if we're fair, it's going to look like they're just copying other cultures. But Hebrews, which is a book in the New Testament, says that these things in the Old Testament, like the altar, pillars, the temple... They were actually kind of like shadowy glimpses into what was going on in heaven. They're kind of like earthly representations of heavenly things. And if these spiritual beings in rebellion are actually the ones who told the people, hey, I want you to build these pillars. I want you to build this ark-like thing for the, right, like these other things. It's very reasonable to look at and understand that these spiritual beings were also trying to replicate for themselves worshipful activities and things that they saw brought honor and glory to God. They said, I want that for myself. 
And so we're going to see some of these similar, similar things in these other cultures who worship spiritual beings who have rebelled against worshiping God in an effort to get worship for themselves. And so that's a little bit of, of at least how a dumb Christian like myself is, understands the Bible when I read it. And, and in encountering these like accusations that, oh, the Israelites just stole the ideas. And sure, maybe it sounds convenient. Well, these these gods really stole the idea from God, Yahweh God. And, and you know, I'm not trying to like create an argument where you can defend. I'm just saying, hey, look, this is what I see when I read the Bible. So we get down to uh, chapter 24, and it's talking about throwing blood on the altar and on the pillars. This is a callback to the Passover when they had to paint blood over the doorpost so that the wrath of God would be, they would have protection from the wrath of God. The blood protects them. Now, pillars in this context, and probably others as well, have a couple of meanings. And the first is they're kind of like the foundation of the, of the, the, the congregation. They're the foundation of the people. And they represent all the people. So, for example, Jewish tradition calls Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the pillars of the Israelite faith. Paul, in Galatians 2.9, refers to Peter, James, and John as the pillars of the church. Not that it's based on them, but they're kind of like a foundation that has really built up the the ground from the groundwork, okay? They're also representative of the people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob represent the entire nation of Israel. Peter, James, and John, representatives of the church. In this case, 12 pillars representing all 12 tribes, everyone in the 12 tribes. And so when the blood is sprinkled on the altar and on the pillars... It's meant to be this represent, representation that this blood is covering everyone. Instead of, ever, I mean, this is a massive crowd, right? We go back to the numbers. If it's actually the numbers literally recorded in the Bible, we're talking between two and three million people. There's not nearly enough blood for Moses or time for Moses to go around and sprinkle everybody with blood. So he sprinkles the blood on the pillars. This is an important visual reminder. Hey, especially in light of all the ways that Israel has repeatedly rejected and grumbled and complained against God. Oh boy, you really need this protective sacrifice. And it's actually establishing this pattern for when they get into the promised land, this mode of sacrifice. We're going to talk about it. Actually, there, there's laws throughout uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy uh, about here's how we protect ourselves from the wrath of God when we break his laws and commandments. It's through the shedding of blood and sacrifice. So they build the altar, the pillars, they sprinkle the blood, they take the book of the covenant, which at this point, the best understanding is the 10 words or the 10 commandments. They take them all together. They go through this ceremony and they say what, and the people say to Moses, whatever God says we will do. Now, do they do everything that the Lord says to do? Spoiler alert, no, they do not. And that's going to cause major problems um, as they try and get into the land. And I don't know that we're actually going to get into numbers anytime soon, uh, but 
Trust me, it causes major problems. Anyway, they promise we'll do whatever God says to do. Moses is like, oh, great. This is finally things are starting to work out. And I like, I like the direction that we're going. And then God says, hey, Moses, come back up here. I'm going to give you some more detailed instructions. So he says, uh, Moses heads up to the mountain and leaves his brother Aaron and her, who was a guy who helped Moses. Remember when they were fighting the Amalekites and he, he needed help keeping his arms up? That was one of the guys who helped hold Moses's arms up so that the Israelite army could have victory. He leaves Aaron and her in charge. God has more information for Moses, and Moses is about to spend 40 days on the top of the mountain. And, and while the cat's away, the mice do play. We are, uh, we've got about 16, 15, 16 chapters left, and, and I'm not quite sure the best way to go about walking through because there's a lot of laws, there's a lot of like Jewish imagery and things, um, but we're going to do our best to try and condense but compact and compact but understand what the rest of Exodus is talking about. If you've enjoyed this content, uh, please check out the links in the description below if you're on YouTube. That's where my sources are. That's where I get a lot of the stuff that I talk about. And I want to give you guys a heads up. Um, we're probably going to be taking a break here soon on Dumb Christian because we're working on a pretty major gospel project and want to make sure we give that plenty of our time and attention. But I will keep you guys posted as we go and I will catch you in the next one. I love you guys. Oh, oh, oh.